Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Dr. Howard A. Grossman is a board-certified internist who's most widely known as a specialist in HIV medicine and LGBT health. His involvement with HIV patients led him to become one of the plaintiffs in a landmark United States Supreme Court case that sought to overturn laws regarding physician-assisted suicide. Dr. Grossman has received many awards, including a 2003 award from Compassion and Dying and an award of Courage in 2005 from the Foundation for AIDS Research, also known as AMFAR. He now works in the Department of Internal Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic in Florida. And before we get started, I just want to say that the views and opinions expressed in this interview are those of Dr. Howard Grossman and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Cleveland Clinic, Florida. Physician and advocate Howard Grossman joins us today from his home in West Palm Beach, Florida. Dr. Howard Grossman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. And welcome to Florida. Um, (laughs) You moved here in the summer of 2016 after 40 years in New York City, but you were born in New Jersey. So for our listeners, let's put this in context. Tell us a little bit about growing up in Jersey, about your parents and leaving New York. I was born in Newark and grew up in West Orange, New Jersey, which is a fairly large town. And my dad was a CPA and my mother had a handbag store. She was actually one of the first people to do discount. And so we grew up, I grew up in retail, basically, (laughs) to a great extent. And that that actually informs a lot of, you know, things I think about medicine, about customer service and, Hmm. you know, things like that. Interesting. Um, I went to Haverford College in Pennsylvania, which is a small liberal arts college. And um, after that, I moved to New York. I decided in my senior year of college that where I was, I was, had been headed to be a doc, a lawyer, I'm sorry, I decided to switch gears and become a doctor. So I did my post-bac pre-med stuff at Columbia and moved to New York and um, stayed. <laughs> and never left. <laughs> did my Never left. Well, did my uh, well. Now I have it. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I trained in Brooklyn. At um, I went to medical school at Downstate State University of New York, and mm-hmm. um, then did my um, residency and internship at Kings County Hospital, which is one of the largest uh, public hospitals in the country. And uh, what I usually say is, HIV hit the wards about the same time I did. In 1983, when I was an intern, when I finished medical school, um, the Kings County Hospital actually had 5% of all the reported AIDS cases in the world. Oh, my gosh. uh, In that one hospital, yeah. And, you know, it's a very different kind of epidemic. It was mostly uh, an an epidemic of of drug users. It was a real education. And so when I got out of there, you know, one of the things that happens in a big city hospital like that, I think, for many people is that it really makes you very hostile to patients. (laughs) Really? Um, Interesting. 
Yeah, and so I decided I needed to take a little time, and so I worked in an emergency room in the Brooklyn VA for six months, just trying to kind of chill out, figure out what might what I was going to do next. Most people would not um, think of working in an emergency room of any kind as chilling out. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> <laughs> it was a fairly it was a fairly routine job compared to what I had just the three years that I had just gone through. It, yeah. it was a very intense experience. This uh, working in that in Kings County, we were really in many ways on our own for much of that experience. Mm-hmm. Didn't have the kind of education, and we, but you know, you basically as a uh, house staff officer, you did everything. So it makes you very unafraid of <laughs> things. So in that way, it was a, a good education, good uh-huh. preparation for what was going to come after. So when I decided to move on, I got a job with St. Clair's Hospital. It was a small Catholic hospital in New York that no longer exists. And it had one of the first HIV, dedicated HIV units in the country. And so I did that for about a year. And then I went into practice. Can I ask, if we back up a minute, about your parents. Your dad's no longer living, is that right? Correct. Okay. He died about four years ago. And can you yeah. kind of tell us what your mom's life was like after he died? Yes. You know, I think typically for many people of, of her generation, you know, she's going to be 88 this year. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of being in any kind of facility or senior housing is sort of anathema. I mean, they, I think they think of it as nursing home. Right. That's the first thing that occurs. And she was very insistent. My parents had sold their house and moved into an apartment back in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And she was very insistent that she wanted to stay in the apartment. But uh, after he died, she was actually getting more and more dementia, and she was really becoming unable to care for herself. So, but, my, you know, my brother and sister uh, wanted to respect her wishes and keep her at home. And so she had 24-hour care at home. Uh, Fortunately, she and my father had been very frugal over the years and saved enough money, and she could afford it. So we had somebody in there 24 hours a day. Wow. Uh, And she hated it (laughs) Uh (laughs) because, you know, she didn't have her privacy. But, you know, she really couldn't do it on her own. After several years of this, and, you know, she was getting a bit worse, you know, we finally sort of with the argument of, you know, you could get your privacy back if you go somewhere, she went to uh, assisted living. And, you know, what you and I talked about, and I think is a very important lesson for many aging people, is that at the point that she decided to finally go, the only option was pure assisted living. So, you know, she is still mostly with it and can do a lot of things herself and goes out and does things, you know, has some guy who drives her places and things. But she's in a place where many people are much more ill and and further gone and it doesn't make her, she's not happy about that. But the problem is, is that if you wait until you need as much care as, as she does, as much help as she does, it's too late. You can only get into an assisted living situation. So the kind of place that I think most of us would rather end up is a place where people are at multiple levels mm-hmm. of need so that, you know, you know the, these places that are more senior housing where um, people move in when they're still independent they, and they age in place, I think it's more has more of a community feeling, you know, as you get older and you maybe get more ill and need more help. It's there right in the same place. Your friends are there. You know, the people that you've gotten to know. Um, it's, a, it's a very different kind of experience. She, so she went into a standalone ALF. It didn't have the levels. Yeah. Okay. And I know that you have a couple of siblings. Your sister lives near your Probably mom. Is that right? She does. Yeah. 
was there ever any thought that your mom might move in with your sister? No. Uh-huh. <laughs> because that was emphatic. Well, because... I mean, several different things, but also yeah. my sister lives in New Jersey, but she works in Boston. Oh, okay. Uh, commutes. Oh, um, my gosh. Okay. You know, several times a month. And mm-hmm. my brother-in-law, they live there, but he teaches at Johns Hopkins, so he goes the other way. Oh, gosh. So, okay. Know, there, there really wouldn't be somebody there all the time. Oh, that's Im- that's important consideration. So how often does your yeah. sister see your mom? Every week. Every week. So a couple times a week. Uh-huh. A couple times a week. You know, when I was living there, I used to go take her out to dinner once or twice a week. I'll bet she really misses you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, but they were, you know, everybody, and this was kind of a family decision. Everybody was very in favor of me taking this job and moving down here. I didn't do it without talking to them. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, because I was leaving my sister with all the responsibility here. <laughs> yeah. And she was she was like, go. She I said go. She yeah. said go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good that you had that support from her. Oh, yeah. Um, so your mom was really taken care of in one way or another, sounds like, without interruption. And she yeah. and how is she that's doing good. in the assisted living facility? How do you think she's doing? Good. You know, I think she's doing really well. She's gotten to know some people and it's more socialization, which is good, which is what I always thought she needed more of because she was right. uh, at home and especially in the winter up north, you know, she was pretty isolated. And this way, there's a million activities for her to do if she wants to. It's kind of funny because it turns out I always thought my mother was the social one because her business and the way she was with customers, stuff mm-hmm. like that. But it turns out it was actually my father who was more social. <laughs> <laughs> and after he died, she just was a little bit more isolated, I thought. Yeah. Well, let's move on to other topics. Um, Your work with HIV patients led to an appearance before the U.S. Supreme Court, as I said in the opening, in January of 1997. It was the October 96 Supreme Court term, and it was a landmark case, Vacco v. Quill, brought against the state's attorney general, Dennis Vacco. Can you talk a little bit about the case and the terminally ill patients that you represented? Sure. Well, you know, first of all, we don't call it assisted suicide anymore. That's kind of has a pejorative sort of connotation. And we really talk about patients being having the right to make end-of-life choices Mm -hmm. uh, and to make their own choices. And this getting prescription for medication uh, being one of those possible choices. Mm -hmm. So uh, what what happened was that in, um, I guess it was 94, Larry Kramer, who is a friend of mine and was the founder of ACT UP and GMHC, one of the founders of GMHC. And, and what does know, GMHC like, stand for? The right people don't know. Women's Health Crisis okay. in New York, mm-hmm. which was probably the first social service agency, uh, community-based social service agency working with HIV. And Larry, it, you know, is a very well-known activist, and he wrote right. The Normal Heart, right. Broadway play, and a number of books, and he used to be in the movie business. Anyway... He called me up and he said, there's cases is coming up and uh, or they, they want to do this a test case. The patients should have the right to make uh, these choices at the end of their life, terminally ill, that competent terminally ill patients should be able to do that. And do you know any doctors who would participate? And I said, yeah, I would. And they were looking for doctors and patients. So I spoke to one of my patients, a young man who had advanced HIV, and we had actually talked some about some of these issues and he wanted to participate. So we started. And really, you know, when you do one of these kind of cases that tests the law, it really is, it's all about the lawyers more than anything else. Yeah. I mean, 
as a plaintiff, you're deposed and, you know, you answer questions and stuff. But for the most part, this is it's all legal maneuvering. So as a plaintiff, you talk to the press about these issues. That's kind of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything else happens through the law. And it was a it was a fascinating experience. So in New York State, we worked our way up through the courts in New York State and we won. The New York State federal court found that patients had the right to ask doctors for help. But then the, the attorney general at that time, who was Dennis Vacco, appealed it. And uh, and that's where it turned into Vacco v. Quill, because before it was Quill v. Vacco. <laughs> uh-huh. And it, it's a fascinating experience to go to the Supreme Court um, in yeah. any case. But, you know, to have it be our case, that was kind of amazing. And we lost. And you lost, uh, right. Right. So the the court actually found that, you know, that there was no constitutional right to die, but they sent it back to what they call the laboratory of the states. Mm-hmm. So really their finding basically was that, that there wasn't enough law, and so they couldn't make a decision, hmm. and that states should try to work this out. And that's when you started to get, you know, places like Oregon and Washington, and now there are, I think, five states that allow the terminally ill people to ask for help. So the case found that there was no constitutional guarantee of the right to die. But what you're saying is they sort of left the door open for the states to experiment with different options. And then and then it bubbles back up to the Supreme Court, which is kind of what we're doing now. There's another case that was started last year. Mm-hmm. And it's it was sort of working its way in the New York courts right now. So yeah, Eric Schneiderman is the is the Attorney General of the State of New York now. So the case is, see? it's uh, three doctors and three patients. Myers v. Schneiderman. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Okay. So Howard, you work with a lot of older adults, and in the United States, end of life care has been referred to. I've seen in articles as a pot of gold in our modern medical system, chiefly because so much <laughs> spending. I don't think people really realize this: that a huge percentage of Medicare dollars goes to spending on the elderly and extending life. Medicare spending in 2011 was almost 554 billion dollars. 28% of which was spent during patients' last six months of life. That was a Kaiser Health News report. Much of that money is spent at the very end of life. At the very end of life, right. So I'm going to throw out a bunch of different questions here, but let's start with when you were in medical school, what sort of training did you get in managing end-of-life care and the process of sort of engaging in difficult conversations? Well, you know, let me make a distinction here so the stuff we were talking about with end-of-life choices as far right now, as far mm-hmm. as the legal stuff, mm-hmm. is really only for competent terminally ill patients. You know, even though we're all terminal and, you know, as right. we get older, right. uh, it's not for older patients. Okay. Uh, this isn't for people without serious disease with a limited life expectancy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's who it's for. It's mm-hmm. not for people just because they're aging. And and that's very important because you get the opponents con- constantly mixing up the two. Mm-hmm. And saying, uh-huh. you know, you're just looking to, to have euthanasia and kill everybody and right. all that kind of stuff. But backing up, in medical school, we had a little bit of training. In the late 70s, they were putting in place some training on talking about the difficult questions, how to listen to people, things like that. There was a growing awareness that physicians really needed better training on these issues. So... I do feel like I got some, but it's it's not much. 
I mean, and, and the medical school curriculum is so packed with things that it's very hard to add new things to it. Just teaching about HIV, for example, when that came up, uh, you'd go to a medical school and they were getting maybe a, a quarter of a day on HIV. In mm-hmm. uh, that, that piece of people were walking out really not knowing anything about how to treat or how to, how to deal with patients. And, and end of life stuff just takes a backseat in many ways. So why is that? I mean, I, I know it's partly because of the logistics of the number of courses, but you contrast that with training for invasive procedures and sort of thing where mm-hmm. planning ahead, demonstrating procedures, observing right. the learner in action. Yeah. Why is there so little? I mean, end-of-life care is just like the last chapter. Isn't that as important as the first chapter? You would think so, but I think that, one, there's a basic discomfort about these things in general in our society, and then doctors are no different from everybody else. People just don't really necessarily want to talk about these issues. And then I think in, in modern medicine these days, uh, you know, everything's about having the money to actually keep the lights on in practice, and there's no money to be made in the psychiatric counseling side of medicine. Nobody pays for that stuff. And if it's not paid for these days, and that's especially true here in Florida, it's not going to happen. Wow. That's kind of a bummer, huh? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's an industry. No, I just heard it's a, a talk. A friend of mine just gave a talk at a meeting I was at the other day, and he was, it was on HIV psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's brilliant, and he gives a wonderful talk. Um, he's from uh, Johns Hopkins. And he basically was saying, listen, you guys, as psychiatrists, we can't do this. They're paying us 20 bucks, 15 bucks to see somebody for an hour, and we can't afford to do it. So you're going to have to do it. The internists out there, the primary care people, you're going to have to treat the people with borderline personality disorder. You're going to have to treat the people with all these psychiatric illnesses, depression. You're going to have to know how to do this. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of where we are in, in nationwide. Wow. Especially acute, I've noticed here in Florida. So this sort of idea of a good death, it's not a familiar concept in American culture. I mean, we seem to actually be a death-defying culture. As a physician, (laughs) what is your definition of a good death? And how does it differ from how non-physicians view death, do you think? That's a very interesting question. I mean, I think for me, a quote-unquote good death is one that is in tune with what the patient wants. To me, that's really what it boils down to. Some people want absolutely everything done up till, you know, every experimental thing, everything else. Other people want to just make sure they're not in pain, basically. And as long as they're in control of what's going on, that's a good death for them. For many, you know, terminally ill patients who know that they're, they're going to die, there's no question about it. A good death is one where they are in control of the situation, where they can make a decision to when and how to, you know, move on. I mean, there are people who feel that there's something especially beautiful about the dying experience and that people should go through the entire experience no matter what, and that that's very important. I don't agree with that. I can say I don't agree with that. I think that individuals need to be able to make their own choice on that. Uh huh. What are some of the ethical considerations you face in end-of-life care? Well, I think, you know, you, ha- you have to be very careful about um, making sure that it's patients' wishes that are being followed, that people can talk about all the issues, that somebody is making a decision that's not coerced. You know, if you look at the laws that are in place now, and like I said, in places like Washington, Oregon, things like that, they really protect people very strongly from abuse. And those laws have worked very well. They've had limited use. 
and uh, but people have taken advantage and in many cases people will get sort of the pills for example people have to go through they have to see at least two doctors they have to have a di- you know very confirmed diagnosis of terminal illness they have to be screened for depression you know all those things and in fact What's happened in a place like Oregon is that, that unlike other places, nearly every terminally ill patient is in hospice care. So they're getting the end-of-life care, they're getting pain control, they're getting, they're getting social service support, they're getting financial support. All that stuff is, is taken care of, and it's happening to a much higher degree. In a, I don't know, for Florida, for, for example, but mm-hmm. in New Jersey, where I had a second practice in recent years, the vast majority of people are referred for hospice care within 48 hours of dying. Okay. Wow. So they're referred to hospice mm-hmm. way, way at the end of the, of the process, which uh-huh. is a terrible thing. I mean, people in hospice do great work, but people are not being referred uh, when they, you know, early on when, when it can make a big difference. And what are the reasons for that? So some of it's coverage, uh, Medicare coverage. Just, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's financial coverage, insurance, things like that that won't cover till the very end. And then some of it is people's discomfort with considering that the end is coming. So actually talking about death, talking about dying, um, people, you know, a lot of people just don't want to do that. And I think many hospice people in the hospice movement would agree that the earlier you talk about these things, uh, the better for patients. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, the the services that they offer, that the hospice um, people offer, you know, there's a lot of counseling involved, a lot of just, like I said, social support, family support, things like that, that are important to put in place early. Right. Without naming names, can you give me an example of a case that you had difficulty with, that perhaps you had to counsel a patient and help them face their fears with end of life? Well, I mean, that's one of the reasons I got involved in the case in the first place is Mm -hmm. because I was doing that all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, in you know, in the darkest days of HIV, people were dying left and right. That issue came up a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think people in the HIV community became leaders in this area. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the interesting things that's happened is that since HIV has become so much more treatable the last few years, there's far less people involved. So for a while, there were a lot of young people because HIV was hitting young people. Uh-huh. And there were a lot of young people who were involved in the movement to try to get patients the right to make their decisions. And since things are so much better, the end of life stuff is back to really mostly being much more elderly people are much more involved. If I go to, when I go to a meeting or I give a lecture, it's it tends to be a much older crowd than it was for, for many years. Mm-hmm. And that's too bad because this is an issue that really affects everybody. People really need to get involved. It's something that I have made it my business to be as comfortable as possible talking about with people. Right. So what do you say? How do you, how do you help people face their fears? What's hard about well, it for you? I mean, too? I think, you, you know, I think it's about honesty. It's about letting people express their own fears. You know, when you give somebody a diagnosis of a terminal disease and you say, look, there's no way we're going to change the outcome here. Then you have you have to let people absorb that. You, it, it's an ongoing discussion, mm-hmm. and you want to know what that person feels themselves, what they want for themselves. You know, you want to talk about what all the options are. I mean, I actually try to bring up these issues with people earlier 
to make a living will, to have a you know medical power of attorney, to have those things in place. Because I, I think one of the greatest fears people have with illness in general and with aging is that they'll lose control. And so the more that's down in writing, I say, if this is my medical condition, I want this, this, and this procedure. I don't want this, this, and this procedure. You know, if I'm going to be in a coma for the rest of my life, I don't want to be fed, you know, intravenously or, you know, through a tube. I don't want to be resuscitated. I mean, or I do. I mean, for people who choose to go all the way, that's their right and their choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, But make it clear. Uh, Make it clear. Make sure that it's spelled out so that families aren't left trying to make those decisions, trying to figure out what you want it done. Uh, they're not fighting over it because it's all down in writing. Right. So I think that's that stuff is very important, and that stuff you talk that everybody should be talking about, not just terminally ill people. But you know, like I said, I think when when you are there and you're giving somebody a terminal diagnosis, a lot of it's just about listening. Uh huh. You've been practicing for a long time, but still, is it hard for you to deal with your own feelings? <laughs> you're still practicing. Is it hard for you to deal with your own feelings? I mean, you're a human being after all, even though you're a physician. Yeah, I think we learn. You learn to give bad news. You know, I'm very aware that it's not me that's dying, um, and I think that's important. I think that's a hard one. People say, "How do you deal with this?" And I mm-hmm. say, "You you you keep your eye on the prize. You know, you keep." keep aware of of who's the person who's in need here. Mm -hmm. And yes, I think we all need to find ways to stay healthy. I mean, my brother's an oncologist. Mm -hmm. He's the one that got me to move down here. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I see him. I mean, I see him twice a week. He's up here in West Palm Beach. And Mm -hmm. I can tell when he's had a particularly hard conversation. He's a really good doctor. And and he really cares very fiercely about his patients. And he's, he's involved in palliative care. So he actually is running the palliative care service at Cleveland Clinic here. Mm -hmm. He's been doing palliative care for 30 years. And, and so he deals with these issues every day. And, and I can see it in his face when he walks out of a room, you know, and I, I, I know that feeling. You, 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 know, you keep your game face on in the room and you're listening to people and they're crying and you're holding them and you're sitting there waiting until they're ready to hear more or to talk more. And then you walk out and you just, you just you know, take it. It takes a few, you know, you take a few minutes. <laughs> I, I can imagine. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, look, in the worst days of the epidemic, um, the plague, as my friend Larry calls it, mm-hmm. um, people were dying to my patients. It would be two, three, four a week, mm-hmm. um, sometimes two and three in a day dying. And, you know, you had to find a way to stay sane in the middle of all that. What a terrible, terrible time that was. It was. Yeah. And yeah. Not, not every provider was able to survive that. I had a lot of friends who burned out. You know, there were a lot of people who were trying very hard. They thought they were going to find the cure. It was very obvious to me early on that the cure was a long way away. And mm-hmm. This was going to be a really long slog that, you know, both for political and um, scientific reasons. And so if you don't take the long view, you're just going to burn yourself out. And uh, I wanted to be around as yeah. long as I could be doing this work. And you've been, the audience really doesn't know this, but you have just, you've really done an amazing amount of work. I've been very lucky, actually, in my career, I think, to meet amazing people, to work with amazing people. It's it's really kind of been a great privilege. So we've been talking about end-of-life issues and aging. How do you think LGBT folks age differently than straight folks? I mean, what are the differences? What are the considerations? 
You know, I, I think one issue is that we age differently in terms of the family resources that many of us have. I mean, mm-hmm. there's an awful lot of people who have families that that they built, and rather than the traditional, you know, family and. As people age, a lot of times those families get pulled apart. People are forced to go back to their biologic families for care. So people move away. If they do have children, their children are living in another state. They go there to be close to them. And so they lose the group of people that they put together. And, you know, it's very hard if people go into, say, a nursing home. A lot of times they go back in the closet. Right. LGBT nursing homes and, and things like that, people have tried to build them, but they they have not, for the most part, been economically viable. And uh, there's some really interesting projects that are going up in um, Philadelphia and in Brooklyn to do senior uh, housing for LGBT folks. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see what happens because some of that money was federal money. We'll see if that goes away. So, so that's that's important. We, you know, we have to realize that we need services that are directed towards our needs and, and our community. Right. The other thing about LGBT care that I learned, especially opening up in New Jersey, is that we're in a place where yeah, the haters are out there, but. For the most part, we've turned a corner, and most people are not bigots about our issues, but our our issues are not on anybody's agenda. And when you start to tell people the difficulties that LGBT folks face in getting care, they're shocked. They just have no idea what many people go to, and that's especially true for transgender folks. Yeah. But just LGBT healthcare in general here in Palm Beach County and even in Broward, there just isn't a lot of people looking for gay doctors, you know, for primary care. Just there's just not a lot here. Certainly not enough to serve the whole community. So that's one of the things that I would like to work on. Well, that's really great. What are some of the surprises of working in Florida and the population here that really are different from what you're used to in New York? Well, New York's a very different place as far as social services go. I used to kid that it was the socialist state of New York, and you know, <laughs> taxes are high, but people get taken care of. So Medicaid, ADAP, you know, the AIDS Drug Assistance Program um, are out there and available. The mm-hmm. senior services are out there and available. And um, Florida has chosen not to take care of people, you know, not to have high taxes, and everybody likes that until they need social services. <laughs> yeah. And then they're like, how come this doesn't exist? Why do I have to pay for everything out of pocket? There's a number of interesting things that are different about Florida. This is a, a highly competitive commercial in, insurance market. In New York, for example, corporations can't own hospitals. So there's a very different approach. So you don't get the kind of bean counter corporate bureaucrats that are very common here in South Florida. And there's a lot of players here. So the insurance companies are able to play them off against one another. So reimbursement rates in Florida are terrible for medical care. Uh, I don't think people realize that, you know, and I didn't realize until I came here and, you know, learned from our CEO, who's a brilliant guy, that basically, for example, for our clinic, we get about half of what they're getting up north for the same procedure. Wow. So you have to run these hospital systems with half the money. How do you do that? How do you do that? You do that by cutting out all the fat, all the fat, the extra social service, departments that aren't making money. And you can see that happen here as, you know, departments get cut out of hospitals. There isn't social work. There isn't, you know, in many places, there's, you know, all those kind of things. Um, And that's directly a result of what's going on reimbursement-wise. 
So let's talk about what concerns you have with the repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, it's going to be a nightmare. You know, I was just up in Cleveland at the Cleveland Clinic, and one of the people who spoke to us said there are probably 18 hospitals in Ohio that if, if the Medicaid expansion goes away, we're going to have to close. I mean, that's horrifying. Mm. And a lot of hospitals have really based their planning on the Affordable Care Act funding being in place. To go back to a thing where, you know, 20 million people don't have insurance, again, well, if it was 40 million total, but where the 20 million who got insurance don't have it anymore, means that people are going to go back to the emergency room. It's going to be this huge dislocation. And they're trying to time it so that it doesn't affect their re-election, the Republicans. So they're trying to make everything hit after 2018, hoping that they'll hold on to power and be able to consolidate it more. And, you know, I mean, there's a certain amount of, what's the German word, Scheidenfreude, uh-huh. you know, that basically this is going to fall hardest on the people who supported Trump. I had an elderly guy, a 94-year-old guy come in the other day. He goes, oh, so this Trump is going to fix health care, right? And I'm like, are you kidding? I said, are you ready to buy your own Medicare insurance because you're going to get a voucher to yeah. go to the insurance companies? You want to figure out what the market's going to look like? I mean, that's what they want to do. They want to destroy Medicare. You know, the greatest program for health in this, in this country's ever had. And they don't care about poor people. They really don't. They, you know, they're doing this whole thing about poor people, poor people having cell phones. I mean, what does that have to do with anything? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we can't be sure of anything anymore because whoever thought we'd be in the situation yeah. in a million years. So anything can happen because the people in government are more concerned these days with their own self-aggrandizement than anything else. Either they're complete liars when the things that they say. Or it's what I call the gated community complex. If their friends and the people they know are okay, then everything's okay. Mm-hmm. So all they see is what's happening right around them. There's no empathy. There's no understanding that people are suffering. They just don't care. As long as their friends and them are making money, everything's okay. And truthfully, you think anybody on Wall Street's going to be hurt by this? You know, only the people who own stock and healthcare companies. Are you concerned about your own needs as you age? And how are you preparing? Well, that's a good question. Unfortunately, in order to keep my practice going in New York, I went into serious debt and am digging myself out of it. And that's part of why I'm here to Mm -hmm. have a job. And my brother and sister were like, you got to stop. And, you know, part of it is because I need to do that planning because I don't have money saved. Everything went into keeping my practice going. So I feel it very acutely. And I'm working very hard now to save all the money I can. I didn't expect to be here at this point in my life. I didn't expect to be seriously worried about this stuff. Well, the work that you were doing in your private practice was so commendable. What would you have done differently? Uh, I just trusted the wrong people in many cases. I was involved in a lot of stuff, and it took my eye off the ball as far as the business goes. And you can't do that when you're running a business. Yeah. I was never trained to run a business. They don't mm-hmm. teach doctors to be business people. And I, you know, my, I was focused on patient care. That was what I wanted to do. But that really means I didn't have the focus on, like I said, on the business. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so interesting, though, because your situation is its own thing. But, you know, being focused on patient care shouldn't have to be at the cost of making a living and running a business. In this country, medical care is a business for all intents and purposes. Mm -hmm. And patient care should not have to be sacrificed. That's just, and it isn't always, I don't mean to suggest that it is all the time, but um, what you were trying to do was commendable. And I'm sure a lot of people benefited as a result of it. 
whether or not you had business well, jobs. I appreciate that. But the bottom line is, is that the model that I was doing, the private practice model, is that I was a dinosaur. It's not a sustainable model, especially a small private practice of one doctor. That mm-hmm. was just me. I mean, I was running two practices. <laughs> so I was basically seeing patients six days a week and basically working seven days a week. You run your own business, and this is true of all small business people. You you know, you're painting the walls, you're paying the bills, you're picking garbage up off the floor, you know, you do everything. And the, the money's just not there anymore in medicine to do all that. I mm-hmm. mean, the, the, the reimbursement rates keep getting worse and worse, and you have to be part of a big organization. And I think that's why you see more and more practices closing and doctors going to work for larger organizations. And you need that backup. I love having the Cleveland Clinic behind me. I, I love not worrying anymore. Mm-hmm. about that stuff because they're really smart people making those businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, it may not always actualize, may not always be what I think is it, but you know what? It's fine. They're much smarter than me <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and about this stuff. I, you know, I, it's a good feeling to not worry about it. Right. Sure. And the Cleveland Clinic is so widely respected, except when mm-hmm. they had the event at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go. I had to go there. <laughs> had to go there. Well, you know, I mean, people do need to realize, be a little practical here. You you can't reschedule an event that's planned years in advance. I mean, these kind of things are planned way, way in advance, and you can't just say, "Oh, we're going to move it." Right. We're this, talking this about happen, for people but. who don't know, an event that took place at Mar-a-Lago that the Cleveland Clinic sponsored. There, it's a big annual fundraiser. A big Mar-a-Lago. annual fundraiser at at Mar-a-Lago. Then there are there are a few events of this nature that were controversial because they were held at Mar-a-Lago, a Trump property. Everybody. Right. Everybody. You know, right now, in the last bunch of years, every big charity has had their events there. Mm-hmm. It's a huge space. It fits 800 or more people. And that's where people have had events. And for whatever reason that they, they choose that, I mean, that's, a, that's a place on Palm Beach where people have done that. I'm not sure that that's going to happen next year for anybody. The Red Cross has their thing there. All these Jewish organizations have their events there. I I think many people are reconsidering it, partly because the security issues are huge there. When he's in town and they have these events, you know, people spend hours getting into them. Uh, right. Which doesn't make for a happy party. <laughs> exactly. Right. We were very, very lucky that he didn't show up that weekend. So what did you think of Mar-a-Lago? Truthfully, I mean, so I was very conflicted about going, but I had a lot of patients who, who were asking if I was going to go, and I met some very important people and made some good contacts there, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which being new, it's really helpful. And um, what did I think about it? What you can see of the Marjorie Merriweather Post part of it is gorgeous and uh, kind of amazing that she spent so much money. Um, but it's actually very interesting because it's very Moorish <laughs> inside. Uh-huh. So it looks very Arabic. <laughs> it looks very Arabic, did you say? Yeah, it oh, has, it's, you know, that 1920s sort of Moorish look. When you walk in, that's what it looks like. Hmm. Tile and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. I think that's kind of perfect. But the ballroom that he built, to me, I guess, was kind of garish, <laughs> is the way I'd say it. So let me ask if you have any last thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners. We talked about a lot of interesting things. Did we leave anything out? And do you have any last thoughts? Oh, let's see. I mean, I think what I try to tell my patients is that they need to start to think a little bit differently. So in this healthcare environment that we're in, the really evil players are the insurance companies. uh, And they are playing us off against each other. And so they make patients and doctors into enemies. And we really need to be allies. 
So my goal is to try to continue to give what I call old-fashioned care, the kind of personalized care that doctors were known for, but in a more efficient way. We have to get more efficient. We have to see, doctors have to see more patients. They have to be on time. And that to me means educating patients how to be patients. You know, you can't just walk in and expect everything to be done for you anymore. Not going to happen. Not our, not the healthcare system we have. So you need to be an active participant. So if your provider has a patient portal, for example, where you can look at your chart, where you can send emails, where you can ask for your medications, it's far more efficient than anything we've had before. Use it. I mean, you need to participate. You know, you need to learn about your disease. You need to, you can't just expect the physician to stay on top of everything. You know, if the physician has several thousand patients, you need to be an active part of your healthcare. So that's really important. You don't have to be the doctor, but you should have at least a little bit of understanding of whatever problems you have. And, and people need to educate themselves about general health. There isn't time anymore to counsel about everything at every visit. So, you know, you learn as a provider to one sentence or two sentences, are you still smoking? Do you think about quitting? You know, every visit, just one or two sentences is enough to kind of tweet people, but you don't have time to do the extensive counseling all the time that we used to do. Mm-hmm. And being here in Florida, many places do not have the resources to have somebody else do it. So that, that I think, you know, I think is a big challenge. So people need to start getting educated about their own health. And like I said, we need to be allies in this. We need to realize we're in this together. So if you get a bill and it's from your lab or you get a bill from the insurance company, don't panic. Just call somebody and get it fixed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know it's a hassle, but insurance companies, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield in a state up north that I won't mention, somebody told me in the old days, they used to throw away one third of all bills. They just threw them in the garbage, one third of all wow. uh, claims, because the insurance claims, because people would then pay it in many cases. They would, um, they would then pay it or wouldn't? The people would pay it themselves out of pocket. The insurance company didn't pay. The patient would get frustrated because they would be getting notices of, of unpaid bills and they would just pay it. Oh, so wow. they very much depend on people to panic and Ugh. not fight. They just reject things out of hand. Wow, that is so, so disturbing. So, so, yeah, so I tell patients, you know, one of the biggest things I can say to you is don't panic. This is part of the game. It's a game. Insurance companies are not in the healthcare business. They are in the business of making money for their sh- their shareholders. And they are going to do everything they can to hold on to your money for as long as possible and not pay it. So it's the game. You get the bill. You got to call somebody. You got to say, this is wrong. How is this coded? Does this be recoded? You know, there's a whole process. Mm-hmm. And if you panic, they win. Uh-huh. And the same way, if you lose your temper, you know, you call an insurance company and you want to fight something, they put a person on the phone with you who's making fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a year and has a screen in front of them that says what they're supposed to say. And those people are put there for you to yell at because people yell at them and they have no power. And you have to realize when you're talking to them, these people are following the script and you don't want to lose your temper. You keep it cool. And if they're not giving you what you want, you ask speak to somebody higher up and then you ask to speak to somebody higher up than that and just keep going until there's somebody who can take responsibility. But like I said, they put these people out there to be punching bags. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so sad. <laughs> so it's a very well, we different perspective it. on what's going on with healthcare. <laughs> yeah, I love it though. Physician and advocate, Dr. Howard A. Grossman, he works in the Department of Internal Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic, Florida. 
And again, the views, opinions, and positions expressed by Dr. Grossman in this interview are his alone and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or positions of his employer, the Cleveland Clinic, Florida. Howard, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, my and, pleasure. It was fun. I really appreciate your perspective and your work. Thank Thanks you. so much. I really appreciate that. Bye, Howard. Bye. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Rate us. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes. Head on over to agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z.com. And use our search feature to discover some great conversations with guests who talk about issues of specific interest to you. You'll get tips, find links to useful information, laugh, cry, and best of all, know you're not alone. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. <laughs>